it's not good. It's it's yeah. I, I don't I don't I, I don't have much in terms of like positive stuff. Hi everyone, welcome to an emergency episode of the Cheap Talk podcast. My name is Jeff Caplow. I'm an assistant professor at William and Mary. Joining me today, as always, is my esteemed colleague Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Jeff. I I, I wish we were meeting uh, digitally under better circumstances. Yeah, it's not great out there, Marcus. And we have both gotten um, emails and uh, other kinds of communication from from students and others wanting our respective takes on uh, what's going on with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And Mm -hmm. so we thought, uh, rather than responding to you all individually, (laughs) we could... could, uh, Which takes uh, a while. Yeah, this is about efficiency more than anything else. Um, We thought we could um, just share some of our responses to some of the questions that we've been getting um, in the hopes that it's... That having some information, more information curated this way is a little bit reassuring um, in the midst of uh, some some pretty horrible stuff happening out there. Before we get to the the listener questions, I thought it would be important to start us off with this um, audio clip. I'm a pretty optimistic guy, Jeff, and I don't think we're going to see violence in either of those two instances. So I actually think Russia... Uh, at the end of the day, we'll we'll sort of back down, partially because I think Biden um, is just going to uh, find some sort of diplomatic way out of this, and I don't I don't see Russia kind of pushing their luck by invading Ukraine or or doing silly. Um, I also don't think necessarily. I mean, I know if you look at Putin's sort of um, approval ratings with with the Crimea uh, annexation, he he got a bump in in popularity. I'm not sure that Putin necessarily thinks that furthering their incursion into Crimea into Ukraine will help him all that much. So I, I don't I don't necessarily see that happening. So longtime listeners will recognize that clip from um, from a previous Cheap Talk episode in which Professor Holmes uh, confidently stated his um, belief that we would not see a conflict between Russia and the Ukraines and Ukraine. So um, just thought I would put that there. Just to remind everyone kind of where we're coming from. I mean, I appreciate you doing this. It's 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 good. It's it's I'm I'm fully transparent. Uh, I, I'm happy to admit that I, I well, I'm happy to admit that I, like many people, struggle with making predictions about the future. It's just one of those things. Uh, and in this case, I admit I I, I fully, completely, hundred percent got this wrong. I mean, Jeff, the, the the tricky thing here is I I still believe everything I said. I I can't believe what I'm seeing. I did not expect. To see over the last twenty four to forty eight hours, Putin invade Ukraine. I didn't think this was a smart move. I didn't think he would do it, and I was completely wrong. And I also thought that Biden would be able to strike some type of deal, and I was wrong there too. So I am I am zero for two in these situations. Yeah. So in the midst of you know the bad stuff that's happening, if there's one silver lining, it's that we can we can hang on to this recording of Professor Holmes. Um, making the wrong prediction. It's funny you don't you don't seem to have the tape about your predictions. Did, did you make a prediction on this one or no? I don't think I would have made a confident prediction like this. this <laughs> I, I would have hedged in some way. <laughs> right, that's, this, this, yeah. this one was a little. That's right. Yeah. I was I was very confident. Yeah. So should we start there? Should we? Yes. Should we kind of I think talk that, about... that actually leads yeah. pretty well into the I think the biggest question that we're getting, which is why? What is the motivation for uh, Putin's decision to reinvade Ukraine? You said it well in, in, in your horrible prediction. You know, 
it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem to make sense on the face of it that um, that Putin would want to do this. So what's your take? Why is this ha- why is this happening? Yeah, I, I I didn't think it made sense then, and I'm not sure it makes sense now. Um, you know, I, I think there's two to make the sort of 30,000 foot view of this, there's two main sort of, I think, camps of people who look at this differently. The first one is that Putin, Russia as a state, is fundamentally sort of a defensive actor in this situation. And under this rubric, they have watched NATO expand over the last, you know, 20 years and have gotten closer and closer to their, their borders. So now they're basically kind of encircled by, by NATO. And that's threatening. You know, I, I think most people that, that think about this can understand how that would be threatening. If Mexico had an alliance with China or, you know, the Warsaw Pact during the Cold War, uh, we would be threatened by that. Cuban Missile Crisis was partially uh, based on this idea that we don't like states don't really like having, um, you know, weapons that can be used against them close to them. Like This is not this is not rocket science. And so. From a defensive perspective, I think one of the arguments that, that you hear a lot about is that his motivation here is to prevent Ukraine uh, from being in NATO. And there's lots of ways, presumably, to do that. One very good way of doing that is to invade the country and take out their leadership and put in leadership that is pro-Russian. And so therefore, you're going to nip this in the bud and Ukraine is never going to join NATO. For the past several months, when Ukraine was amassing troops at the border, I thought what this was doing was showing the West that Russia's serious about this topic, right? They don't want Ukraine and NATO, and they're showing you how much they don't want Ukraine and NATO. They're putting troops on the border. I thought, incorrectly, that that was going to be enough of a signal that, that Putin wanted to send, that he thought that was going to be sufficient to, to show the West that NATO, you know, Ukraine and NATO is, is not going to happen. But clearly, from this perspective anyway, he thought that he needed to go further and not just take out the separatist regions, but also the entire country, as, as it's playing out right now. The other camp, though, finds this story to be, they look at it a little skeptically. And they say NATO, the, the NATO story is actually more about sort of creating a smokescreen, as Charlie Kupchin put it the other day, or just manipulating the West, right? So if you sort of work this through the logic, if Putin thinks that we think that NATO would be threatening, he can use this to his advantage and use it as basically the reason to do these types of things. He says, you know, they think that this makes me nervous. I can use that to my advantage. There are people like Michael McFaul, for example, who say that NATO has never been a threat to, to Russia, that Putin over time has talked about actually cooperating with NATO. And the idea that Russia would be threatened by an international alliance when Russia has all these nuclear weapons and a strong military, it just seems a little far-fetched to a lot of people. And so maybe they, yeah, they don't like it, that there's this alliance you know, kind of creeping up against their, you know, their border, but not, it's not a reason to go to war. Uh, and so what this is really about is Putin's offensive endeavors and thinking about, you know, sort of resuscitating the, the Russian empire or getting back to the good old days when Russia was a great power and, you know, sort of righting some of the wrongs that have been happening to, to Russia over the last 30 years. I don't think anybody really knows the answer to this, this question. I don't really think we know exactly what is motivating Putin. Um, if his concern is NATO, ironically, then this action seems to make a whole lot less sense. Because if you're concerned about NATO, the response that Biden and the West and the NATO countries have made in, res- in, in response to, his, to Putin's actions is to strengthen NATO. So if you're worried about NATO, the alliance being a threat to you, 
you don't like the idea of Biden, Biden sending more troops to NATO countries and more funding for NATO countries. So it's, it's not obvious to me that, that the way to deal with Ukraine not being in NATO is to invade Ukraine because you're just going to strengthen the other NATO countries that are also close to you. And the alliance just continues to, to, to be strong. The last thing I'll say about this, Jeff, and then I want to get your take. I thought what was going to happen in my audio clip that you so graciously held on to and played for us, I thought there was a deal on the table that could have been reached and indeed probably was going to be reached. A deal that would look something like Ukraine remaining for the foreseeable future a neutral country. NATO has had this sort of open door policy, the idea that if you want to be in NATO, they're going to let you in NATO and you have to fulfill certain, you know, obligations and criteria, but, they, but you'll get in. That is something that could change. And I thought it was going to change and that the threat of war would have been enough for the West and you know, NATO leaders and Biden to basically say, look, we're willing to have Ukraine be a neutral country. We get your concern. We're going to have Ukraine not be in NATO, not be a client state, but just neutral. And then that should be a sufficient sort of buffer between Russia and NATO country. I thought that deal was one that would be reached. And when, when there was all this diplomacy going on the last couple of weeks, I thought that's what we were kind of moving towards. And I thought the, the, the troops on the border was basically to try to make this deal happen, to, to increase the leverage that Russia has and make it more likely that this deal happens. And so I'm shocked, in a sense, if that deal was on the table, that it wasn't taken. If the deal wasn't on the table, and we won't know all the details of this for some time, but if the deal wasn't on the table, I'm curious as to why. Now, I know you have some thoughts about why the United States is not in a great, you know, sort of selling Ukraine out in the sense of making them a neutral country is not necessarily in the great, like, long-term interest of the United States. But in terms of avoiding this particular violence, this particular war, I thought it was a... I thought there was a deal on the, deal on the table that we could have we could have reached. Yeah, so I I, I don't have too much to add to that except I, I think I would cast Russian issues the the theory that that this is kind of NATO driven or um, I think I would cast that a little more broadly and and talk less about NATO and more about kind of Russia's threat perceptions or maybe maybe even better to say Putin's paranoia about threats um, on on the border. Um, so I don't think it's about NATO at all. It, I think it is about having a friendly country, or maybe a better way to put it, be like a, a country that could be controlled effectively by Russia on the border. So it's it, that, so this is why the oh we'll just we'll just agree not to have Ukraine and NATO probably, in my view, wouldn't have been enough to stop what has happened uh, because that. That's still a country that is fundamentally unfriendly to Russian interests um, right up on Russia's border. And that's the thing that I think if we're going to look for a kind of more rational kind of reason for uh, for this behavior, which I'm not sure there really is one. But if we're going to look for one, I think that's as close as we can get that. I think that I think Putin has an interest in having client states or puppet regimes kind of arrayed along the border. And Ukraine was never going to be that as long as it was this government in Ukraine. And then it goes back to, well, how do we get a different government in Ukraine? And I think um, this is the way they, they settled on. Uh, so I, I'm not sure NATO is the key thing, really, so much as it is having this kind of ability to have a puppet regime. Most of the students that I've heard from 
kind of want to know where this is going. And, you know, clearly I'm the wrong person to ask because I, I don't make great <laughs> predictions. But, uh, you know, if you watch CNN, for example, you have some some of the guests come on and they say, you know, this is this is going to end when um, basically the Russian forces enter Kiev and, and force Zelensky out and put in some, you know, pro-Russian uh, leader. Other people say this is not the the end goal that the end the end goal really for for Putin is is more broad that he wants to sort of expand um the Russian sort of reach the Russian orbit into other places in Eastern Europe potentially even threatening some NATO countries um and so I I think you know there's there's concern from students about like is this is this a sort of 48 hour kind of event or are we really talking about an event that's much broader in the sense of creating uh, a, a broader war in Europe. And I think the other concern that I've heard from some students is what this means for other regions of the world, most notably Taiwan, and what signals, you know, the West or the United States, it might be sending China uh, about their willingness to defend Taiwan, should China decide to, to, to move on. it. So I think just a general question is, what, what's gonna, what do we think is happening next? What's, what does the short term and the long term look like? Yeah, so, so looking just beyond the war in Ukraine that uh, I suspect will not be a tremendously lengthy conflict, but we, we can maybe talk about how we, we think that's going to go. I'm seeing a lot of takes uh, right now on the interwebs that, you know, this is the step one in, in, in Putin's plan to reconstitute the Soviet Union. And, you know, I, I think there is a very clear and distinct difference between Ukraine and, say, Estonia um, when it comes to Russian aggression. Um, and it's not to say that this isn't a test of NATO and um, how they respond to this might influence what it is that Putin does does next. And I think President Biden made that point in his speech today, um, Thursday, as we're recording this. And, you know, the, the basically like now is the time for NATO to send a signal of unity and strength and there will be no incursions allowed into NATO countries. Um, and so drawing that line, I think, is very credible in the, in the sense that um, it, it will Russia would definitely think twice before advancing further. Um, and, and there is a kind of real difference between Ukraine and, and the NATO nations in, in that respect, because they're members of this treaty and there is a treaty commitment to, um, you know, use military force um, if they're threatened. So I, I think on the broader conquest of Europe story, um, I think there's reason to think that, you know, that that probably isn't a, an imminent thing. But it's possible, you know, if NATO if NATO shows a lack of unity here, I mean, I, I suppose it could send a signal um, that would encourage Putin to push further. Uh, but that doesn't seem likely to me. People have talked about Taiwan in, in this context that, you know, here we have the U.S. abandonment of a democracy. Right. That um, some have said this, that that. Uh, if the U.S. and uh, Europe is willing to kind of turn its back on a, a democratic state that's being threatened by an autocratic state in, in this case, what does that mean for places like Taiwan who face threats from from China? And again, I would say I think it is a little different um, and different in a few ways. But one is that the U.S. has consistently held out the idea that it will be supportive of Taiwan in a conflict against China. Now, this has been made to be ambiguous, right? Um, and it's not clear what that support will mean. But uh, it's different than Ukraine in the sense that I don't think anyone through any point in this in this process had real illusions that the U.S. was going to send troops to defend Ukraine from Russia. Um, and 
And that is not the case with Taiwan. I think there is significant ambiguity about what the U.S. might do there to the extent that there's enough uncertainty that China is definitely got to think twice about um, about that that approach. There are also, um, you know, geographic constraints that make a amphibious assault on Taiwan a tri- tricky business for China um, and would probably telegraph their intent pretty far in advance of an actual incursion and would give the United States time to try to signal that they have the military, that they will support Taiwan militarily. So I think there are there are differences between these cases that mean we shouldn't necessarily see this as like the complete collapse of U.S. credibility uh, abroad, um, you know, nor should we necessarily see it as like a strong statement about U.S. support for democracies. It is kind of somewhere in between. The effects of this invasion in terms of the U.S. response for sa- uh, regarding sanctions and its unity with its allies, I think, do have a, a signaling effect. And it's something that um, countries will be looking at. You know, how, how does the U.S. respond to this? What do you think, Marcus? Yeah, I, I, I actually completely agree with everything you said. I mean, I think Taiwan is very different than Ukraine. You know, Biden has been very clear. Not, uh, he's been clear. I don't know if he's very clear that we wouldn't um, have troops on the ground in Ukraine, certainly, or, you know, sort of intervene in any way. And so that was not much of a deterrent uh, in terms of a, a military response. He's tried to deter through sanctions, and obviously that, that wasn't uh, as successful. I think the, the one thing I would also add to, to what you were saying about NATO countries and those being different, like Estonia, I think my, my concern is not so much that uh, Putin wouldn't think twice about attacking a NATO country, but I'm, I'm more worried about accidents. Uh, either either accidents that are actually actually accidents or accidents that are sort of you know made to be viewed as accidents. Where if a NATO country, um, you know, because the region, if anybody's seen a map, uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty tight, right? And this is actually part of the problem, right? This is his point that NATO is like right next door. It's not inconceivable that in the sort of fog of war, you know, a mistake happens, a, a missile lands in a NATO country, there's some NATO response, and that we get sort of dragged into some type of conflict that neither side really intended. Um, that is a concern of mine, and I, I, but I completely agree with you that I don't think Putin is sitting there thinking about the next or the first NATO country he's going to inv- invade. I don't. That doesn't strike me as something that's particularly likely. But I think mistakes and accidents are something that will keep me up at night uh, for the foreseeable future. Well, that that kind of ties in with a question that I've gotten from a couple of people, which is: it, Is this the way it all ends? Is this the beginning of of World War Three? Are we going to see a nuclear response? It's, is this going to have nuclear escalation? Is this conventional conflict between Russia and Ukraine going to turn into um, a nuclear conflict between Russia and NATO? And um, I, I get, you know, my response to that is is not tremendously worried about that. But uh, and I think we have other things that we should be much more worried about in terms of, you know, the civilians in, in, in Ukraine and uh, the kind of humanitarian toll that any kind of military conflict takes. Um, and there's going to be some horrible stories. And, and I, I think that's the, the the thing that's that's most worrisome right now. So I, I would kind of say I, I don't think that a nuclear response here is likely. But whenever you have military conflict, whenever you have heightened alert, uh, there's more risk of, of an accidental um, escalation into nuclear weapons. And I think this is something that countries uh, pay a lot of attention to to try to tamp down any accidents at a time like this. But whenever you're on high alert, um, it's something that you that you have to worry about. And there are a number of places where we could see accidents happen. So whenever there is interaction between uh, NATO troops and Russian troops. So, for example, Syria, where um, you have 
U.S. sort of U.S. troops um, f- uh, floating around and you have um, Russian troops floating around, you know, there is a risk that there are uh, kind of accidental engagements between these forces. And this has happened before. Um, and it's the kind of thing where, OK, it happened before. It didn't lead to like a nuclear war. Why would it now? Well, because now everybody's freaking out because there's a military, there's a there's an invasion going on. There's there's rhetoric from both sides that have kind of escalated things. And so there's a risk that a what would have been kind of a minor incident could become a major incident um, that, that we wouldn't be able to kind of tamp down that escalation. And you can make a similar case about. Um, you know, the fact that we have a, a conflict right on the edge of NATO and one errant uh, Russian missile hits Poland and we're, you know, now we might have a problem. And so, you know, I think it's incumbent upon everyone to make sure that they're uh, trying to uh, keep a lid on this stuff and deconflict so that there isn't this unintentional escalation to nuclear weapons. There's also the risk that Putin decides that it would be in his best interest to I don't know, at least cast the shadow of nuclear weapons on some of this stuff. So we heard him in his crazy speech um, making up stuff about Ukraine. As part of that speech, declaring war, basically, he said something about, you know, the the Western nation should stay out of this or um, they'll face consequences the likes of which they've never seen or something to that effect. And, um, you know, some have interpreted this as a nuclear threat that, you know, NATO stay out. If you come in, we're going nuclear on you. That That is bad in the sense that it, it does increase the risk of, a, of an unintentional escalation because it's on the minds of NATO troops that maybe, uh, you know, this crazy Putin guy might um, might decide to, to go nuclear. And so then they're uh, a little bit jumpier. And so and then re- they respond a little bit out of proportion to what they're seeing. And so the, the risk of unintentional escalation on both sides increases with that kind of rhetoric. And it's something that we, we need to watch out for. Um, again, I don't think it's the, the primary concern right now, but it's it's kind of in the background and it's something that always becomes more dangerous when there's a heightened alert situation. Well said. Well said. I think that exactly encapsulates uh, what I've been worried about as well. So I guess one last question for you, Jeff. Uh, some of the students have been asking me about these sanctions. Like what, you know, it doesn't seem that, that these unified sanctions sort of deterred Putin, obviously. He went in anyway. Uh, maybe that's because you know, Russia has sort of sanction-proof its economy, or maybe he just doesn't, this is so important to him that he doesn't care, he's willing to pay those costs. Um, but do we think that these sanctions, uh, including the, the new round of sanctions that Biden announced today on Thursday, do we expect this to do anything? Or um, is this just sort of like, you know, the, the, you, the West has to do something, they're not going to put boots on the ground, they're not going to do anything militarily, they have to show that they care, though, and so sanctions is kind of like the, the next best thing. Is your expectation that these, these sanctions will have much of an effect going forward? I think they do have an I think they will have an effect, but it depends on how well they are sustained. And this is this is always the trick with sanctions is that the impact is not instantaneous and the pain kind of builds over time. And so for them to be effective in order for them to change the calculus of of one party or another, they need to be sustained and there needs to be a united front. And right now, in the immediate aftermath of this, you know, clear aggression from one country to another, we can sustain them. It's not clear that we can do that in the long term, uh, because this is a country that has got a lot of oil and gas, right? It's, it's, uh, it's got resources that other countries want, and um, cutting off a major country from the international economic system is, is very difficult. And with China kind of not in the coalition of countries that are sanctioning Russia, 
you know, that's a big chunk of the economy there um, with China. So uh, I think whether these can be sustained is the key question as to whether they affect behavior. I also want to say about sanctions that I think some of the sanctions tanks or takes are not great. In the run up to the war, I don't think they were great. The, the, uh, a lot of people were critical. Why, have, why are we waiting? Why, can't, why haven't we announced sanctions already? And, and the, re- the reason is because we want leverage, right? We want to hold back sanctions to the, the harshest sanctions so that we have some leverage going forward. There's still something that we have not, in, some pain that we have not inflicted on you that we can inflict on you. Um, and so in the run up to the war, we had a lot of, of commentators saying, you know, why isn't the U- why is the U.S. waiting? Like we have four, four troops massed on the border and it, why isn't it acting now? And I think the reason is that we wanted to say, OK, if you back off now, you don't have any sanctions on you. But if you go forward, then you will have these sanctions on you. And people have talked about, well, why aren't we sanctioning Putin's Putin personally in some way? And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that that's actually quite hard to do. Um, because of, uh, you know, the way he has managed to um, kind of keep his assets um, outside of the outside of the system that could be sanctioned. But also because we do want to hold stuff back. We, we want we want there to be still be levers that we can pull in the case that I think is. I don't know, not hopefully will not happen, but but may that this becomes a, a major humanitarian um, disaster with. Um, real threats to civilians that we might be able to try to alleviate with the additional threats of of more sanctions to come. And I, I don't think that's a particularly strong lever, um, but I can understand them wanting to kind of keep a couple of things um, in case this gets much, much, much worse. It, it will get worse, but in case it gets much, much worse. Again, we're on the same page. I, you know, you have to leave something that you can do, a lever you can pull in case things as bad as they are uh, get worse. And if it's not going to be a military operation, then you have to have, you have to do something. And I think you're also right. I mean, China clearly is going to be a big part of Russia uh, sort of avoiding a lot of the pain from the sanctions and that they've indicated that they're they're happy to continue trading with Russia, at least for now. Maybe they can be convinced otherwise, but that's doubtful. And even today, when we saw the, the sort of question about whether or not uh, Russia was going to be kicked off of certain financial systems. Europe was kind of dragging their feet. Sanctions are a sort of two-way street. You know, it's like Europe needs Russian oil and gas uh, to fuel their homes and have heat. And by not having that trade with, with Russia, they ultimately end up paying a lot of the costs as well. So there's been some takes that I actually do agree with, which is, you know, Europe is the, the cost of this war. Ironically, uh, a lot of them are going to be paid by Europe uh, because they're the ones that the sanctions, which you need to do. I think we both agree. They're the ones that also are going to be affected by this. And so, you know, it's it's not quite as simple as just saying we need to stay unified. And and I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to say that, but it's much harder to sustain that over time when. You know, people, everyday people's, you know, pocketbooks and checking accounts are affected because of the rising costs of all kinds of goods, most particularly oil and gas. So I think we'll have to see. Yeah. And it's, it's not just it's not just Europe. I mean, you know, Biden was very, very clear in his speech. I thought, you know, he's going to do what he can. He, he, he paid a lot of attention to gas prices. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I think um, the problem with sanctions, <laughs> you know, sanctions are, are very costly to the sanctioner. And so um, in the United States. Um, we're going to feel that too. And I, I think the Biden administration is cognizant that 
um, the U.S. population, given the inflation that we've had and, it, it, you know, may not be down for a long, uh, long stretch of, of very high gas prices and other kinds of economic pain and anguish. I think that will be a key question. We're coming up to an election, um, midterm congressional election. And, uh, you know, if, if gas prices are, are, are skyrocketing, you know, what will be the appetite of the American people? for the kind of sacrifice that comes from maintaining these sanctions over the long term. I think we will face less of that than Europe, for, for sure. Um, and I think there are, step, there are policy steps that can be made to um, kind of uh, minimize the effect, uh, particularly on oil and gas reserves. And maybe this is like the impetus we need to get even more renewables into the, into the mix, you know, long term. But it's definitely a problem for maintaining sanctions over time because people are going to feel the effects here, too. Can I just say one one thing that I have been thinking a lot about, and I I know it's a very small thing, but I have been heartened to see the the protests in Russia, um, in in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and other places. I mean, as as the, all the news outlets are pointing out, this is not something that's easy for Russians to do. It's not like going and protesting in the United States. You you can you know suffer consequences, really bad consequences for protesting in Russia. We've seen Putin take action, uh, harsh action against people who speak out against him and, and the level of, of, you know, your ability to, to have free speech and things like that. And Russia is just not the same as in the West, but they are out there anyway. And they're risking that because a lot of them don't like what they're seeing. And so they're speaking out collectively uh, to have a voice and to, to signal to, to, and that they're not happy with this. So it, it's, it's a very small, uh, from my perspective, a very small kind of, of positive uh, visual imagery that we're seeing, but I'll take what I can get. Um, because there's not much happiness going on uh, these days. But I do like seeing people out in, in the streets in St. Petersburg or Moscow. Yeah, and I mean, this is one way that maybe this this backfires on Putin long term. I think a lot of people have, who, who know more about him than I do, more about Russian politics than I do, have said this, that this is a this is a risky move in, in strategically that, you know, here he, he unites the NATO alliance that was squabbling before he... Um, you know, creates additional pressure domestically, such as such as it is. You know, it's a difficult thing with, with the way Russia is is so politically locked down. Um, but it, you know, potentially weakens Putin, and um, especially if the if the sanctions regime holds up, um, then it could severely weaken Putin. And this could be you know the 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 push that uh, maybe weakens his hold on power in the long term. So um, there's at least. At least that op- option in front of us, you know, maybe maybe that's the way things will go. And it's something um, that, uh, you know, as we watch some of these horrible images uh, coming out of Ukraine, that we, we can at least hope that there's a silver lining there as well. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for, for joining us. And we'll uh, we'll see you in the next season unless, unless something else uh, really bad happens. Horrendous happens. Right. Thanks so much. See you guys. Feel free to email Marcus with your additional questions. Um, and I will, I will try to make better predictions in the future or no predictions in the future. How's that? Yeah, that's right. You're wrong. <laughs> Stay out of the prediction business for at least a little while.